Okay, so he was sitting here still, haven't died yet, hopefully, all here together to listen to Buddhist teachings about how to realize the true nature of our own being, how amazing, so we can be free of suffering, so we can be blissful, so we can only be happy, so we can have wisdom, so we can benefit others to help them do the same. That's the plan, okay? So, okay, were there any more questions during the break? Anybody written something, just in case? Uh, Venerable Rabina, we've just had a question um, from Jai just about a refuge ceremony as to how long it would last. Just He says, just so I can plan, how long will the refuge ceremony last? Well, if our Lama Zopra, it might last till midnight, but I'm not Lama Zopra. So you can guarantee it'll probably last 30 minutes if we're lucky. We've got to teach, I've got to talk about it first because I don't know where you all you people are at. So we need to talk about it. Maybe maximum 45 minutes, I would suggest the whole teaching. The refuge ceremony itself was five minutes, but it needs teachings first. Because so the point about it for me is this. I saw there's a list. So those of you who are certain, because you've heard the teachings before, that's fine. But those of you who are thinking about it, then it's appropriate to listen to the teachings first, to understand exactly what refuge is, to understand exactly what the vows are. So then you can make a decision once you've heard the teachings. So the last 10 minutes of it will be the ceremony itself for those who actually want to take refuge and the lay vows. So if you're interested, you can listen to it and then make a decision. Those of you who are certain, then that's fine. So I'd say we, after the teaching at uh, my nine o'clock, which will be two hours from now, I'll have a, we'll have a five minute break and those who want it, anybody who wants us to watch and be there too, you're very welcome. We will then have the teachings about it and then we'll do it. So I think maximum one hour, perhaps Jai, but I can't guarantee it. Okay. So any questions, no more questions? No, no other questions in the chat at the moment. Okay, good. So that good question before, I forget who asked it, what's the point of emptiness? What's emptiness in Buddhism? Another way to say it is, you know, that all of the teachings in Buddhism lead to this. They all lead to this. Everything you hear about, about first of all, about impermanence, about understanding karma, about the mind, how it functions, the delusions, about bodhicitta, everything leads to this. This is the getting the final wisdom that cuts the root of all the nonsense, that quits our suffering, that then helps us combine with bodhicitta, helps us become an enlightened being so we can be of benefit to others. That's the bottom line. And as what it's based upon is, is this whole point that Buddha's making is that we're caught up in lots of nonsense states of mind that cause us suffering and cause us to harm others. And he has said he's found a method to get rid of that suffering and its causes. That's what all the Buddhist path is about. So. Hmm. Could we offer mandala again? No, don't worry. You might think it. We just offered. There it is. Just done. Offer a mandala. The Buddha thanked for the teachings. How great. We, normally you would. You do the little or short one. Saji perki jukshing metog tramri rabling ji nide gyan padi sange jing du mi cheo vagi drokon nam dag jing la chapa so normally what happens is when you have a break, you do a, you do a little quick Sivasaji Perky at the end as a thank you for the teachings that have just gone. And then you do a quick one to start, which is a request for it to happen. So that does normally what happens. Yes, exactly. 
you do the you'd end them with the tea, you'd be a mandala and you'd fit and you'd start the session with it. But if not, I mean, the beginning you do a nice fancy one, then in the breaks you do a quick one, like I just did then. Do you understand? That's the tradition. Yeah, you're right, Jason. Thank you. So I, I've got a feeling now what I'm going to do is read from Lama's book. There's a chapter now that says, you know. You find it. Chapter nine. Now seek the self and find Mahamudra. So it sounds so silly, but essentially, either in the other traditional way, where we think all the philosophy first and then do the then do the analysis, or we think this method of going straight to the meditation. Either way, what we're trying to do is it sounds so peculiar, is search for what we think the ego is, what we think this self-existent, real, solid, independent little me in there that runs the show. Because Buddha's telling us it doesn't exist, but it's not enough to hear it. As you know, as Wolfgang said, we know it intellectually, but how come we don't get it? Because the habit of believing in an intrinsic me, the habit of believing in an intrinsic, independent, inherent me is eons old. So it's, it's hard. So therefore, you know, Buddha's telling us and either method, we do the traditional one in the teachings where we, there's the four point analysis where you first establish what you think the self is. Then you kind of, you get clear about the parameters of your search. One is either is oneness with us is the parts or it's separate from, and then you do the analysis to prove that there is no self. This is the, the, the analysis or here or based on concentration, we then have a little, and, we'll, and I'll read it so we'll understand what what's involved just hear the words okay to get the blessing from lama yeshi's words but either way we're trying to prove to ourselves this reality that even as volkan said we can know intellectually that there is no inherent i there's different methods for doing that as abstract as it sounds to us so just do your best with it okay don't panic and don't think oh my god i can't understand it's all complicated just let it go in so i'll read treat it like a meditation i'll just read lama so having become familiar with contemplating the clarity of our mind, I mean, we did it for like five minutes, this whole idea of watching your mind. As the root text says, an amazingly skillful method establishing stillness of the mind and a way to introduce the conventional mind. So how they talk here is conventionally, the mind is clear and pure. Ultimately, you know, it has no intrinsic nature. Of course, these words are foreign to us and we haven't heard it, but don't worry about it. Just hear it and just do your best. Let it go in, taste it, think about it. And then we listen to it again and again and again. And slowly, like all knowledge, it becomes meaningful to us. We can now move to investigate the wrong view of ego, how the ego perceives so that we can realize Mahamudra, our ultimate nature. So, okay, just to clear, clear again, there are two modes of meditation. One is the first one, which is called calm abiding, shamatha, which is a non-discursive, non-conceptual technique where we learn to focus the mind on one thing. So when we really began to get that seriously, the mind gets more subtle, we get non-conceptual and goes even beyond the sensor. We have this laser-like single-pointed focus, laser-like, super brilliant, intelligent level of mind. If you can try and imagine that, okay? So the object in this meditation, the object that we're focusing on isn't the breath, isn't a visualization, isn't a concept. It is the actual cognitive process 
itself. You start with focusing on the thoughts and then when the mind begins to calm down, and you might be lucky, it might, it might not, but with practice it will, you then get a sense of the, what they call the conventional nature of the mind, which is its clarity. And you focus on that and you never waver from that. So you just listen to the instructions, you know. So in order to experience Mahamudra, so this word of Mahamudra is referring to emptiness, absence of intrinsic nature. Again, as, as abstract as that might sound to us. In order to experience Mahamudra, we need to destroy ego's conception. So, okay, as you can see here, Afisha, Lama uses the word ego. And what it means is the neurotic sense of self. It's very loosely used, this word, you know. It's this misconception of a self to destroy ego's conception, the hallucinated idealistic picture, the concrete view, this is me. So let's investigate this mistaken concept because we can't recognize how ego mind, and that's Lama's term for this word, ignorance, ma-rigpa in Tibetan. This is the, fun, the correct word for the fundamental delusion that underpins all the other delusions whose function is to believe in an intrinsic me. Lama calls it ego mind. The word is maripa in Tibetan, unawareness, this primordial delusion, this primordial ignorance in the mind that believes primordially, instinctively, way beyond intellect, that there is a real intrinsic me in here running the show. Speaking very simply, okay? That's a very loose way of putting it. This is me. So let's investigate this mistaken concept. Because if we can't recognize how ego mind, how ignorance, how ego grasping, another colloquial term for it, projects its hallucination onto reality, our Mahamudra meditation will become Mickey Mouse meditation. So in other words, it's like this. When you're making a mistake, in other words, if you, another, another simple example, even more simple than Jason imagining that pink is blue, because his eyes are wrong. But imagine you've believed all the time that one plus one is three. You've learned math wrong and you've believed it. You hold on to it. You, you always keep bumping into the unreality because every time you try to count, it never works out. But you just don't understand what the problem is. You haven't realized you've got a wrong understanding. And it's a very deep understanding inside you. So you've got to unpack it. And you, in other words, as Lama's saying here, if you can't recognize the mistake that you're making, if you can't unpack and unravel the wrong view you've got somewhere there, that you think one means this and you think three means that and you never put them together. You've got to be analytical about it to see where your mistake is. You can't just keep saying to yourself, one plus one is two, one plus one is two, one plus one is two, one plus one is three is wrong, one plus, three, one plus one is three is wrong. You've got to understand, unpack it and understand clearly the mistake you're making. Because once you establish the mistake, you get the truth. Okay, good example. Same as this one here. Let's say, you know, um, I'm learning English and I just sound, you know, I can't, I'm learning English and I say, I don't see pink as blue, but I, I, I say the wrong word. I, I don't mean it. I don't even believe in it. It's just simple. I say, oh, that is blue. No, no, Ravin, don't be silly. You've forgotten the word. It's pink. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's pink. Now, listen to this. There's a simple example. 
I believe for a moment, I was training myself and trying to learn English and I said the wrong word. So I believe for a moment, the word for pink was blue, but you picked, you pointed out. So I, so for a moment, let's just say I've got the concept. I believe that, no, even more simple is the numbers, more simple is the numbers. I'm saying, I'm learning my math and I'm going one plus one is three. And you say, Jason says, don't be silly, Rabina, it's two. And I sort of know it, but I forgot. But I did say the thought, one plus one is three. Now, one plus one is three, listen to this, is a concept, isn't it? It's a thought I've got in my mind. And then so is one plus one is two. So they're both simply, they're both simply thoughts. The first thought I had was one plus one is three. Now, I'm not holding on to it. I'm just trying to learn it. I forgot. And Jason points out my mistake. So then he says, no, no, Rabin, you've got it wrong. It's one plus one is two. And I go, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, this is the point. First in my mind, there was a mistake. There was a mistaken concept. The mistaken concept was one plus one is three. And I said it. So it was in my mind. And then you told me the truth. Jason told me the truth. And I, because I wasn't clinging to this lie, I just made them a quick mistake. I'll go, oh, you're right, Jason. One plus one is two. Now, one plus one is three is a concept in my mind. Then I hear the other concept, one plus one is two. And then I buy into it and I agree with him. So now I've said, you're right, Jason. One plus one is two. Now, the question is this. The first point is this. Buddha says we have all these misconceptions in our mind, the primordial misconception that believes in an I that doesn't exist. On the basis of that, we have strong attachment that that I is this and that. I believe there's a delicious cake out there that's divine from its own side that'll make me happy. I believe there's an ugly husband out there who cheated on me, who's the cause of all my suffering. I believe we, all, we have all these misconceptions in our mind that we have been clinging to for a long time that we believe are true, but they're not. So in other words, Buddha is saying there's this big disconnect between how things exist and how I see things. So now what Buddha is telling us is that those, because they're misconceptions, because they're misconceptions, they can be removed from the mind. Because they're misconceptions, because they're not valid, because they're at added nonsense that don't have a basis in reality. Once we've used wisdom to analyze the lies, the lies will disappear once we believe the truth. So simple example here, one plus one is three is a thought in my mind, but it's a misconception. It is a thought, it is a conception, but it has no basis in reality. So when I hear the truth, the one plus one is two, I'm just talking conventional truth here. And I believe it's true, not because he's forcing me, because I proved it for myself, but I just forgot. So then the second I hear one plus one is two and I buy into it and I, I say, you're right, Justin. You're right, Jason. So the point is this, what happened to the first thought? Where did one plus one, three go? Where did the thought in my mind that was there a second before, where did it go? It disappeared into a puff of smoke. And what made it go was my, my buying into and recognizing the true concept. That's what annihilated the lie. Well, that's exactly what we're saying here. Buddha says the deepest lie in our mind, the most pervasive, the most primordial that informs all the other lies of attachment and anger and jealousy and pride and this and that. The root lie is the belief in an intrinsic me. So once We've argued, you've got to argue with it. I've got to, you know, you've got to argue with it, not just replace it. You've got to argue with that using wisdom. And then one day, one day, 
of course, in your subtle mind, one day the truth will become clear to you. And the moment you see the truth, you see the reality, that annihilates the lie. And once you've annihilated that lie, it's gone for eternity. I don't know if that helps or not. Let's keep going. So let's investigate this mistaken concept. You don't just go, oh, I've got to realise that one plus one is two. You go, oh, one plus one is two, one plus one is two, one plus one is two, hoping for a, for a penny to drop. That's stupidity. Oh, everything is empty. There's no intrinsic eye. Everything's empty. There's no intrinsic eye. There's no intrinsic eye. You'll never get it for a million years. You've got to use logical analysis, depending on arising, to argue with it, and that will eventually annihilate the lie. You've got to squeeze your brain first, then you get it in meditation. So this is the meditation mode. No, no squeezing the brain here. So now, it is very difficult to recognize the self-entity that ego is holding. Lama means ego grasping, but he speaks like we do in the West, you know. This, that is why we first calm down the grosser levels of mind in concentration meditation. Without this concentration, there is no way we can identify the unconscious levels of ego holding the independent self, and therefore no way we can realize Mahamudra, emptiness, non-duality, reality. So normally our sense of self, this, this, this feeling we have of a real, solid, pointable, findable, independent I, I'm adding things here, this sense of self is just a vague notion and our ordinary superficial mind never attempts to pinpoint it. So we just, we must investigate deeply and try to identify exactly how we think this fantasy I exists. Lama Zonkapa says that if you're afraid of a snake, but someone tells you that there's no elephant there, what good is that? Your problem is the snake. So we must identify the problem exactly. We have to make sure we understand clean, clear how ego holds its nonsense. The mindfulness fish. So let's meditate on Mahamudra. So you just do your best here. You can close your eyes. You can think about it. You can look around on the ceiling. You can do what you like. First, achieve a level of concentration, I mean, we're not going to be able to do it here, so you just got to hear it, okay? A level of concentration that you're satisfied with, focusing on the clarity of your consciousness. So even to understand this intellectually is helpful. Imagine you're focusing on your mind, but you never, you never waver from that. You listen. This is not something I can pinpoint for you, saying it's exactly this or that. But perhaps we could say it's when you've had a couple of minutes without emotional distraction. Actually, that would be super. And be satisfied with that. Don't think, oh, only two minutes. I should be able to concentrate for 24 hours. Don't grasp. Otherwise, you'll lose everything. Then from this clean, clear state and without distraction, move to investigate the opposite of Mahamudra wisdom, the intuitive ego, this, our so-called simultaneously born ego. In his root text, the Panchen Lama says that you have to be like a fish moving through water without disturbing it. And he quotes, from within that very state of earlier equipoise, it's another word for concentration, investigate intelligently with subtle awareness. 
the essence of the individual who is meditating. Just like a small fish that moves in lucid waters without causing any disturbance. The main meditation then is strong concentration on the clarity of your mind. While you're doing this, your subtle analytical wisdom, your mindfulness fish, watches intently, ready to capture the way that ego mind perceives the self-existent I and simultaneously comprehend the non-self-existent I. Do not think that because you are attempting to concentrate on the mind, you can't at the same time have another part of your mind be aware, be watching. For example, as you sit meditating, you still notice the sounds of the breathing of others, the movement in the room, but you don't get distracted, do you? This is natural. So think of you when you're driving on the freeway. You know, you've got to be focusing on the traffic, but you can notice many things at the same time, but you don't get distracted because our mind can see things out of the corner of our eye, if you like, it's like that. So in the Tibet, so this example here, in the Tibetan texts, they use the example of two people having a conversation while they're going for a walk. A long way to go, baby. There's awareness of the road, but, you know, and I'm adding stuff now because they're having a chat, but they're noticing the road, but they're not watching the road, not thinking that it's a good road or a bad road because our mind has this capacity, you know. So don't think that the mindfulness fish is separate, like a separate thought. It's not. Yes, one part of your mind just keeps going, concentrating on the clarity, while another part, the mindfulness fish, this subtle awareness, because obviously Pantalama didn't call it the mindfulness fish. That's Lama's beautiful way of describing it. The subtle awareness. Your mind's steady, your mind's stable, and you're going to sneak out. You're going to take a subtle part of your mind, checking how you think your eye exists. So yes, one part of your mind just keeps going, concentrating on the clarity, while another part, the mindfulness fish, watches intently. They do have different functions. Initially, you experience them as separate, but as you learn to let go, you will experience them as unified. Just as the rays from a light that shines on everything are part of the light, so your thoughts are part of the consciousness that oversees everything. Ego is like a thief. What might happen is that the appearance of ego will come. You'll catch it, you know, sneaky, it'll catch up to you. But then you'll miss it. It's like a thief who sneaks up when you're not looking and hides when you turn around. If you try too hard to find him, he disappears. This is exactly how ego mind deceives us. It is so sneaky, so intelligent. Instead of building up the strength of the ego, build up the strength of the mindfulness fish to catch the ego, this sense of self, the neurotic sense of self that doesn't exist. That's my extra words. Ego mind is saying, self-existent I, self-existent I, but your subtle wisdom is trying to recognize non-self-existent I, non-self-existent I. So now, a grosser level of ego's views. If there is a real I, independent, separate, existing, then what is it? You have to search. This view of ego has many levels, some grosser and some subtler. 
So first you check the eyes, the body. You will experience many things, Lama J. Tsongkhapa says. Sometimes you feel that the eye is somewhere among the aggregates, in particular the body. Superficially, it seems that way. This body is the basis of our identity, isn't it? Especially in the West, the body is emphasized, so ego mind strongly believes the essential self is related to the body. So check, use your mindfulness fish. Is it in the nose, the ear, the other parts of your body? Is it inside the cells, the atoms? Ego thinks something must be here. Somewhere in this body, I am existing. Sometimes you will feel this concrete sense of I in your heart. Sometimes it seems to be in your chest, other times in your head. Or sometimes you might feel complete darkness or you'll feel you're totally in space. The eye is the mind, the combination. Now think, no, not only this body, maybe my mind is my, maybe my mind is my eye, or maybe the eye is one part of the consciousness, the subtle consciousness, my thoughts. Then with more analysis, check to see if the self is the combination of the body and mind. You see one, okay, I'll just stop now and then I'll explain this other logic. One of the arguments we did before is about the mind, the eye being separate piece. And we did a bit of logic there. That again, if there were a separate piece that is independent of the nose and the ear and the, and the lips, if there's another piece called ear, nose, lips and I, which is what we think, one, one mistake, then that I, if it really were independent, when the lips got hurt or the ear got hurt, the I wouldn't mind. It wouldn't be affected. Like just like when the ear gets hurt and the lips get hurt, the ear doesn't feel it. If the other one gets hurt, they're separate. So the same here. If there were a separate I, which is one assumption we have, it wouldn't mind when your nose gets insulted. The eye's going, oh, phew, I'm glad it wasn't me. No, because we know, we say, yeah, I am hurt, but we give too much status to it. That's why then finally the eyes may be labelled is what we're getting to here. Okay. So, so the other argument, sorry, I'll go back again. The other argument is, well, maybe the I is everything. Maybe all of it's me. This is a real mistake we make. So this, this is as the, the, the basic point that they say is the, the, the label cup, for example, the label cup cannot be the parts. The label cup cannot be the parts. Now, why not? It's the same as the eye. Rabina can't be the parts. Why not? Why not? Well, let's define what Rabina is. So what are the components of Rabina? What are the components of a person? Well, I think the cup's more easy. What are the components of a cup? There's a base, there are sides, and there's a top. Okay, they're the components. So a cup is, a, is made up of a base, a, si a sides, and a top. Now, then you go, well, all of it is the cup. But, you know, all, that means the sides. That means, okay, you're saying the sides are the cup. Yes. And you're saying the lid is the cup. Yes. You're saying the base is the cup. Yes. Well, how can that be so? Because what's the definition of a base? The definition of the base of a cup is it's this round piece of metal that prevents the tea from falling out. So that's the, that's the definition of a base. What's the definition of a cup? Not that. So if a cup is a base and a base is a cup, then you would, they would be synonymous. That means a cup is something that stops the tea from coming out. No, they're different definitions. They're different phenomena. They cannot be the same. 
So if the, if you say the base is, if you say the, the cup is the base, the cup is the sides, and the cup is the top, that means there are three cups. You can't have it both ways. You've got to be very analytical and analyze these words and define each word. Same with I. Oh, I am my, my body. Oh, I see. Are you really? Well, what's the definition of I? Well, I is the name we give to a body and a mind. So how can the, so you just said the I is the body. That means the, the body is, is also I. Well, if body and I, why would I say I have a body? There's two things. It's ridiculous. You might say I have an I. Body has a body. This is the type of analysis we have to do to logically see, logically even, how I can't be separate from and I can't be oneness with. And this is what you're trying to do in meditation. This is the analysis that is not this one. It's just sort of a bit of an analysis here, observing, you know, to prove to ourselves there's neither an eye that's separate from, nor is there an eye that's oneness with. But here we're not doing much analysis. We're just watching, just watching. Keep your focus on the clarity of your consciousness. The mindfulness just watches intently without disturbing the clarity. There are ego, so these are ego, just very, this is very short for Lama. So he says, these are ego minds' views, but they are the grosser level. You have not yet discovered the projection of your simultaneously born ego. So you will see that ego minds' object is not the five aggregates body, is not the mind, and not the combination. These are not what ego holds. These are not ego's problem. No. Yet it's not enough to think the I is not my body, not my mind, not the combination. Nor is it enough to merely not have the appearance of the body as me, the mind as me, the combination as me. The disappearance of that kind of impression is not enough to realize emptiness. So maybe you have the experience you know, of going beyond your body, almost a feeling of no subject, no object. That is good, but it is not enough. Perhaps you have some view of what you think the self is. Maybe I'm this. And then you discover that view is not true. I'm not this. That is not the realization of emptiness. These experiences are good, but you haven't yet identified the nuclear energy of ego, the self-existent I, which doesn't exist, but which produces all the problems. Refuting these ideas is not enough to go beyond ego, not enough to discover the great seal of Mahamudra. It's the beginning, but it's not enough. The appearance of the real I, meaning a fantasy I, is, not, is, is more subtle. Now, investigate ego's real view go more deeply check carefully stay focused on the clarity of your mind move the mindfulness fish without disturbing the clarity it watches intently it is ready to capture the conception of ego what ego mind, ignorance, ego grasping, is really holding is an I that exists from itself. Or as the other lamas say, lama has his own style, from its own side, out there, in and of itself, independently, inherently, intrinsically. These are all synonyms. 
it totally believes, this ego grasping, this ego mind totally believes that somewhere, somewhere deep inside you, solidly within you, beyond the body, beyond the mind, there is the concrete identification, me. It is something that is quite unrelated, that is not dependent, that is not an interdependent phenomenon, that is not dependent, especially on the name I, self. Let's stop there and I'll do some explaining. This is the subtlest meaning. And in some sense, it's easy to understand it. You know, in a, in a book that's coming out of Lama's Opus, he asked me to put together, it's all his letters to prisoners. He's amazing, about 100 letters over the last 20 years, prisoners have written to him. And then sometimes he, I mean, one prisoner got a letter of 45 type pages. He looked like weeks, to, it's like an entire book. You can't believe, you know. So there's amazing, outrageous advice to all these prisoners. There's one amazing chapter on emptiness and on attachment. It's so powerful, which is from this letter to this one man. So as Rinpoche says, this subtlest meaning, in a way, it seems easy to comprehend it. So listen, as Rinpoche says, okay, the subtlest meaning is, the first one is, there's no I separate from the causes. The second one is, there's no I separate from the parts. The third, the real meaning, the one we're doing here, is there's no I apart from the mind that calls it that. So in one sense, it's fairly easy to understand. So listen, you know, if... I'll think of a prison. So what's a prison? What's the definition of a prison? I think a definition of prison, in some, some exceptions, but certainly in the States, a prison is an ugly building where you're sent when you're naughty and you can't escape. Good enough definition. But I tell you, as you go more north in Europe, they're more delicious. I remember one man in Norway wrote to me so excited. He was looking forward to his two years in prison because it was in the middle of the country with a beautiful environment, like a university where he's going to learn and get a degree. He was so excited he couldn't wait two years locked down in a beautiful university in the middle of the country in Norway. That's prison in Norway, you know. It ain't like that in America, I tell you. Maybe in Australia either, but the prisons in Australia are a lot better, I promise you. Most of them I've been to. Anyway, so let's just think of a prison, even if it's a nice prison. Like if you look up a prison, you see, you look up the, the real estate pages in the old fashioned days, you have real estate pages in the newspaper and it says free room in a prison. You wouldn't choose it, I promise. Why? Think of the reason why. Because conventionally, we establish a cup, a person, or this or that, colour, whatever. Now we establish there's a thing called a prison. What's a prison, mummy? Oh, I've never heard of a prison. Oh, and she points that building over. See that building over there? It's got to see the barbed wire and it's set when you're naughty and you can't escape. And it's usually pretty ugly and the food's horrible and you have to have horrible roommates. So you go, oh, that's awful. I wouldn't want to go there. Now that conventionally is a prison. Now you go into that prison, it will function exactly as that because the thing you define like a cup, it has to function as you defined it. It's got to hold your tea. You can't call it a knife a cup. A, cu a knife is a thing that's got a sharp edge that cuts something. That's not a cup. You can't call it a cup a knife. They don't function. So a prison has to be a place that fits that definition. So now, what if you don't know, this is a simple point, that you've never heard of a prison, you've never heard of such a building, and you go visit, you know, and you visit a person, and it might be a nice prison with lovely gardens, all the lovely places, this is so nice. I mean, I've been to some prisons in Australia, that people have a little house, and they have a kitchen with a toaster and an oven, and they have a garden. Now, if I didn't know they couldn't escape, I wouldn't know it was a prison. So this is proving the point that what a prison is, is coming from the mind. 
It's really logical. If I don't know it's those characteristics, all I do is see a nice place and a friendly little house and a few roommates, and they live there, but they don't tell me they can't escape. They don't tell me they're sent there when they're naughty. How would I know? So a prison is coming from the mind. And this is exactly the approach in the Mahayana view where they talk about transforming problems into happiness. It's based upon this view of emptiness. And the real one is, at that level of practice, when Lama Zopa says the practice is, you know, to, to, to learn to like a problem like you like ice cream. So right now we have a, we, we, we know that a problem is something that attachment doesn't want. A problem for us is when aversion arises, when anger arises, when attachment is thwarted, when you don't get what you want. That's what we mean by a problem. Now we've created that over many lifetimes because of attachment. So when you learn to give up attachment, you learn to become more flexible. So when the chocolate cake comes instead of the carrot cake, because you really prefer to carrot cake, and you've got a flexible mind and you're transforming problems, if you, you know, you see the, the chocolate cake come, which you don't like, but you go, okay, I can handle that. And within a minute, you change on a dime and you go, thank you. This is a delicious cake. No one would ever know that you preferred carrot cake because you've changed your mind. So that proves emptiness. Where is the ugly chocolate cake there? If you're going to have a tantrum because you've got lots of attachment, I didn't order chocolate cake, I want my carrot cake, then you get upset. That's what we mean by a problem that's rooted in attachment. So if you give up attachment already, there's no such thing as a problem for you. Now, my friends in prison, there's one woman I always quote on death row for 17 years or 12 years and then five more years before she got out. Husband and her were, 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 you know, were accused of murder. They didn't murder anybody. They were accused of killing two policemen. The, the husband even got executed. She went to the execution while she was in prison and his head burst into flames. I mean, you can't even imagine the nightmare. And they were completely innocent. There's little hippies, you know, hip, hitching in around Florida and they got accused of murder. So now she is not a Buddhist, but she had this ability. She's out of prison now. I know her. She had this ability to know that she could change her interpretation of this scenario that proves emptiness. So in other words, if a prison were in, if, no, if carrot cake were intrinsically delicious, that means delicious in its bones. And if, if chocolate cake were ugly in its bones, intrinsically from its own side, independent of your mind, then chocolate cake would always make you vomit and anybody who ever ate it would always vomit. That's what intrinsic means. It means it's set in stone. Now we know it's not set in stone, but we ego thinks everything is set in stone. That's how it is. That fundamentalism is a function of this ego grasping. And that is why we all go insane. I ordered carrot cake. I don't want chocolate cake and nothing in the universe would make you change your mind. That's because you believe there's an intrinsic delicious carrot cake and an intrinsic ugly chocolate cake so if you don't know that so my friend Sunny she changed her mind so she became happy she left prison a happy person she was delighted to leave prison but you know I talk to her now and I've met many people who've lived in prison and there's this terrible sadness and bitterness of people especially if you've been innocent she's completely innocent all these years husband got executed like a nightmare like hell on earth she's a happy person she's like a little old lady you'd never know she'd had 17 years of hell 
Why? She doesn't have PDSD. That means you've never been able to deal with your suffering. She's been able to deal with it and change her mind. This is because nothing has an intrinsic nature. Of course, it's hard work, but it's proving emptiness. It's proving nothing is set in stone. That's all emptiness means. Whereas we believe everything is set in stone. This is how it is. This is good and this is bad. And we don't even realize we can change our mind. This is the meaning of emptiness. You can change your mind. If you can change your mind, if she can call prison good, then where's the suffering? As Lama Zerba said one time, and this is very shocking. He said, if you don't feel abused, where is the abuse? This is exactly emptiness but it's very shocking for our minds, I tell you. That's proving emptiness. Nothing is set in stone. But it doesn't mean that everything is nothing. No, that's nihilism. Oh, well, I can call a cake a knife. No, you can't. A cake will never cut anything. So you define it first, convention. And so as they say, when you realise emptiness, you realise not there's not a tiny atom of anything that's intrinsic in that prison that makes it a prison. There's nothing from its own side. But conventionally, it functions exactly as you defined it. It's an ugly place where you're sent when you're naughty and you can't escape. That's a fact. But it, it And so this emptiness of intrinsic nature and its conventional reality, they're not contradictory. They come together. And this is the, the fine point we have to get, you know. It's just very brilliant psychology, that's all. It takes time, we can do it. So this feeling of an unrelated, independent, set in stone, concrete, solid, unmovable, unshakable, self-entity me, an essential energy here somewhere, this is me, is so deeply rooted, it's instinctive, spontaneous, beyond intellect. And it's continuously there. It doesn't matter whether you're asleep or awake or talking with others on your own, or even if you forget yourself. What a lovely phrase. If you forget yourself, ego continuously holds this concrete entity, I. It's, in other words, it's primordial at the level of a primordial assumption. Even if you imagine someone cutting your body into pieces until there's nothing left, you'll still feel that there's an independent, unrelated eye there. This is so intuitive, so spontaneous. Excuse me. So with your mindfulness fish, watch for that eye. It doesn't exist, remember, but the feeling of it, the sense of it popping up, the eye that exists from itself without depending on the name that goes beyond your relative characteristics. Try to identify this eye that you totally believe exists somewhere here, the real I, the real self. This is difficult. It is not easy to catch this projection of the simultaneously born ego. You need sharp wisdom. Sometimes it will come, but you'll miss it. So your mindfulness fish must watch intently. Do not conceptualize. Keep the focus on the natural experience of your universal consciousness. Without moving the ocean of your mind, use your mindfulness fish. Now, for a moment, it might, you might, it might catch the ego mind holding the objectively existent eye, which appears to exist without label, without name, without any circumstances. And then for a moment, it will, it will discover that such an entity is totally non-existent. Your subtle wisdom comprehends non-duality eye, non-self-existent eye. Experience the selflessness, 
let go. Again, the intuitive ego view will come. And again, you will feel that the eye is there. Again, penetrate. And again, it will disappear. And an experience of non-duality will come. Each time you find the non-existence of your eye, you are experiencing non-duality. Contemplate. Leave your mind in that state. So I'll skip a bit. Go to some more. So now, uh, so then, yeah, yeah. So your mindfulness fish watches intently, checking how ego mind holds the self. This deepest nature, this concrete, unconnected, solid entity, somewhere deep inside. So this time, the, now this time, the now this time, the intuitive mindfulness fish captures ego's concept, and then it discovers that the eye that appears to exist from itself, without depending on anything, not one dependent particle, without depending on anything, on one dependent particle, does not exist as it appears, is totally non-existent within any phenomenon, internally or externally. The view of the simultaneously born ego that holds such a projection of ego, the concept of I, the fantasy that you have built up, dissolves. You, the seeker, and the thing being sought, dissolve. Subject and object dissolve. That is the experience. You might be scared. This is a natural reaction. In other words, when you get a glimpse of that, it's, it's very scary. You think, oh my God, there's no eye, you know? You get a panic attack. You can, when you get to catch it. For so long, you have believed in this projection of ego, this simultaneously born ego, this built up fantasy. So when it dissolves, of course, fear will come. During one of Lama Sankarpa's teachings on emptiness, he saw that one of his chief disciples, the great yogi, suddenly grabbed himself. He knew this meant that the yogi had experienced the loss of his eye, his concrete sense of self. For him, the whole universe had gone. His self had gone. He was scared. So he grabbed himself to make sure that he was still there. So don't be afraid. It is conventional. Leave it. Let go, experience this non-subjective, non-objective state of consciousness. Now, these are just my intellectual words. You have to capture this in your meditation with your intuitive mindfulness fish again and again. When you penetrate, the sense of the self-existent I disappears. That is the real Mahamudra experience. You discover the emptiness of the non-self-existent I, the non-absolute I, the I that is totally not existing in any part of your body or mind, the I that does not exist without depending on any circumstances, in particular, without depending on your mind labeling I. You recognize, as Lama J. Songkhapa and Nagarjuna show, that you exist only in name. See, that's the conclusion you come to after you've realized emptiness. Once you've realized there's no, once, you, once you've realized emptiness, you then realize subtle dependent arising, that it's merely a label. So once you've realized you know, there's no prison from its own side. 
you then realize it's merely label prison and it does function, but it's very subtle. These two are like really subtle, you know. As Lamazopa says, it's as if there's no I, but there is. It's as if there's a prison, but there isn't. But what does, it's as if there's no prison, but there is. But what does exist conventionally is so subtle. It's as if it's not a prison, but it still functions exactly as a prison. It's ugly and you can't escape from it, but your mind's not disturbed by it. That's the point, you know. And as Lama Yeshi says, I'll just finish this little piece. This is a difficult point. To get the experience of this is not easy. Comparatively speaking, it's easy to concentrate on the clarity of your consciousness. That's easy, but it's not easy to catch the experience of ego grasping. It appears suddenly without your expecting it, so you have to be ready. Otherwise, as we discussed, you'll miss it. It'll disappear, and then it's too late. Only afterwards do we think of the solution. Okay, that'll do for now. So as he says it here, even with the most precise introspective wisdom, seeking the eye in every atom of our body, in every part of our mind, or separate from the mind and the body, we will discover just how difficult it is to recognize the self-entity that ego is holding. But Lama Sankarpa says that once you have finally identified exactly the wrong, the false conception of I, the projection of ego, it'll take about a minute, a second, to realize, to discover its emptiness, that it doesn't exist. It's like turning on a switch. In an instant, we discover non-duality, emptiness, Mahamudra. So the really simple example, as long as I keep believing that one plus one is three, I mean, I'm, and you tell me it's not right, but I'm confused. But when I do the analysis and I suddenly, the penny drops and I get that one plus one is two, that'll then, that instant I get the truth, it, then I will recognize the absence of one plus one is three. I'll recognize the mistake. But until I've done the analysis, I'll never recognize the mistake. And that instant by seeing the truth, it annihilates the lie. By seeing the truth, it annihilates the lie. Just like that. That'll do for Lama for now. So, okay. Okay. There's this lovely story I like to tell, always I've told it many times, about Lama Zopa. So Lama Zopa is a Sherpa, okay, up in the mountains. He came from there, born up there, very poor family like they all were. Tiny, he was born about 1945 or something. And uh, he was, since a tiny boy, I mean, his, um, you know, his sister is several years older and she's running Rimache Centre up there where, where Lama Zopa's cave is, I'll explain. There's this now, this, uh, it's called Laudo. It's this cave, it's a little monitor centre, it's a little kind of retreat centre that's centered around this cave that was the cave of the previous life of Lama Zopa. He was, his name was Kunsang Yeshe. And he is a layman, a Nyingmapa layman, a layman. And, he, and then like a lot of these yogis, he was a yogi. And then towards the end of his life, he spent the last 20 something years in this little cave. 
he said it was used, I think they used to store the radishes there. And the radishes, I think the word is radishes or onions, I forget. Then in, in that language up there, it's laudo. So it's a little cave, he pulled the radishes out and he moved in and he meditated there for the last 20 years of his life. He was a great tantric yogi, which means he completely controlled the process of death. He went through the death process and he was able to meditate and then get realizations and then choose his rebirth. This is not uncommon. So this little boy was um, born. He wasn't Zopa then at the time. His name is now Tupton Zopa. He wasn't called that then, but we'll call him Tupton Zopa. So he, from the time he was tiny, his sister said, he always acted very differently. He was the, the youngest of the family. There were three children. Father had died after this. And he, the sister was older, five years older, six years older. And he always acted a bit different, like he acted different. He'd always sit on his own, eat his meals. Whenever he played games, he always gave, played the role of being a llama. He'd make mud pie dodges and mud pie bells and mud pie offerings. He'd say he's having a puja and he says all his, his and then, he, then he gives the list of all his previous life um, benefactors that they were coming for puja. You know, so he showed all his unusual qualities. And one of the key ones was, you know, they were very poor, really poor. And every time mummy turned her back and go out and do the work, little Zope was gone from the time he could crawl. So I'd see him. So often there's this path up to the cave of the previous yogi, Kunsang Yeshi, who had passed away. And, they, and little Zopa would always be found going up this path, crawling. And there's a little spot they call the resting spot halfway up. And they'd find him there curled up asleep. So they'd drag him home, you know, before he could even talk. So every time she turned her back, he'd be gone. So even when he started to get older and he's, he learned to walk and talk and they'd find him trudging up this hill up to the cave. And so she'd say, come home. He'd say, no, that is my home. So anyway, he acted in this unusual way. He acted like he was the Lao Lama, whatever, whatever. So they got the local Lama to do divinations and it seemed like based on their divinations, this is what they do, these Lamas. It seemed to be that he was the reincarnation, they said, of this Kunsang Yeshi, the Lao Lama. So then he was handed over to the monastery and, he, and then he tells this story when he was about eight. He was sent up to one monastery eight hours away from there called Roa Ling, way up in the mountains. And he had his manager, you know, some guy, it was his monk or something, who was taking care of him. And then there's this big river. And if you've been up there, you know, we go up there. Christina, I think she's here. We, we leave these, we've had three now, I think, where we called the Laudo Trek. And we go up to the mountains. You know, Jason and Amy went with us one time. Other people here have been. It's an amazing experience. We trudge up the mountains, if you like trudging up mountains. I didn't but I promised I'd do it and I did. Anyway, it's, it's marvelous up there in the mountains and the Himalayas. We stay for five or six days and do a retreat and then we walk down again. So anyway, it's very wonderful up there if you like the mountains. I try to like the mountains. When Lama Zobra heard we were all going, he was so happy. He said, you won't want to come back. Well, I did want to come back, I promise. But I still enjoyed it. Never mind. So we raise money. We go up there and we raise money. And we're going to do, actually, there's a little advertisement. Christina and I are going to run a little virtual pilgrimage up to Lauda. We're going to show some videos and some photos. We're going to do it on Zoom. And that'll be a way to raise money for Lauda up there because they need it badly. And Rimache's wanting to build a big, good Rimache place up there, special things he's building, you know. Anyway, um, Lama Zoka, there he was up in the mountains. He's about eight years old. And this must be in 1952. So there's this big river and they're really very treacherous, these rivers. They're so powerful, you know. And there's this little rickety bridge. And across the other side of the river, he sees these weird-looking people. They've got pale eyes. You must be able to see their eyes from a distance. It must be straw-coloured hair. It must be white people. He'd never seen white people before. They just look like Eleanor with her white hair. There you go, Eleanor. All these people looking like, so they look like Swedish people, actually. But anyway, he wanted to meet them. 
And his manager said, no, you don't go. It's too dangerous. But he insisted. So he brings his bowl of potatoes because that's their staple because you can't go empty-handed. So he's walking across this rickety bridge and then he falls in the river. So this is, of course, the, the manager's having a panic attack. He's losing this little Rinpoche, you know, you can't do that. Anyway, this is how Lama Zopa told the story years and years later. He said, he said, the head kept coming to the surface for air. Now, analyze even that before we go further. We would say, I came to the surface for air. Wouldn't we? I came to, surface for, came to the surface for air. He said, the head, which is much more accurate. Because when you start to realize emptiness, they practice this one of not, I am offended. They even talk about, well, that is anger. That is love. That is compassion. You're more precise even in the part of your mind and the parts of you. But we just identify the whole big lump as I, you know, so powerful for us. But then he said, because it's very treacherous. And as he came to the surface, he saw his manager running down the bank, panic, having a panic attack, you know. But then he said, huh, the thought occurred to me, because I don't learn swimming up there, you know, he doesn't learn to swim this treacherous water dragging him down. And then he said, huh, the thought occurred to me. The person known as the Lao Lama is about to die. And then he said, I didn't know anything about emptiness, meaning in that life, he's eight years old. He'd never heard of such a thing. But the fact is, if he is the reincarnation of this great yogi, that means he chose his rebirth. He's completely in charge. He knows what's going on. And that means, of course, he's realized emptiness, not to mention bodhicitta. And you can never lose that once you've got emptiness. So that means it was in his mind already. You can't lose it. So then the nat so this way he spoke was the clear evidence that he had no grasping at an intrinsic self. And this is the point. He said, I didn't know anything about emptiness. And this is my point now, but there was no fear. Now the point is, as Lama points out in this book, as, as Lama Zopa says, when you realize emptiness, you have cut fear. This is one whole way they describe in Buddhist psychology that all the delusions, all the neuroses, all the misconceptions, all the attachment and the anger and the jealousy and the pride and the dramas that are rooted in this root lie that assumes an intrinsic me, because they're lies, they are rooted in fear. And the more delusions, the more fear, the more anxiety, the more panic, the more worry, the more insanity we have. Now look at the world. We're driven by, the, by this incredible panic, incredible fear, you know, because attachment when a thousand times a day doesn't get what it wants, we have a panic attack because it's all rooted in lies. It's all a, a deep, it's, it's the whole thing is like this web of conceptual stories. They're constructs that we have literally made up that have no basis in reality whatsoever. So of course we live in fear because there's a disconnect between us and reality. So when you've cut the root, when you've realized emptiness, you have cut fear. Now, this is very fascinating. Mr. Darwin, I think, he came up with the concept of instinct for survival, something like that, wasn't it? 
And he analyzed all the animals and he observed when they're threatened, they rise up. And we talk about this thing of um, flight or whatever we call it, that business. All of that, and you look at any humans, is exactly the same. Because, and this is what Buddhists call insect for survival is a really good word for ego grasping, for this primordial belief. And most of the time, it's like a sleeping lion. It's only when a carnally runs you over. It's only when your husband is mean to you that it even arises up and the sense of panic attack arises, the sense of, oh, I have been offended. Most of the time, it's sleeping. So this is the point. Because he had realized emptiness in a past life, so he came into it with this life, there was no grasping at an I that doesn't exist because he's already realized it's emptiness. Therefore, he had no fear. Now, we assume you've got to have instinct for survival in order to know what to do. So even though his head was coming to the surface, we assume that was fear that was making him come to the surface. Because we think if there's no instinct for survival, if there's no instinct for survival, he'd sink to the bottom of the river like a stone going, oh, well, I'm dying. What the hell? We think we need this fear and panic to make us act. Buddha says this is a load of rubbish. That's how we are now. We don't need it. In fact, fear just creates cause of more drama. If you don't have an ego, if you have no ego grasping, if you realize there's no intrinsic I and there is no fear, like he had, which is evident from his behavior, then he would know what to do because fear causes you to not know what to do. You have a panic attack. But he knew exactly. So he did his best to stay up and go head to the water, up to the top. But he wasn't panicking. His mind would have been as clear as if he's walking on a quiet street. This is too shocking for us. We can't imagine this because we take it as a given that you have to have this fear and panic, that that's a normal part of a normal person. And it is a normal part of a normal person and animals because we've all got ego grasping. When you realize emptiness, you've gone beyond all that because there's no grasping and a sense of self. Therefore, there's no attachment, no anger, no fear, no jealousy, no depression. There can't be because they are projections of the fantasy. The fantasies have gone. There's no equivalent of this in modern psychology. We can hardly even hear it properly. This is Buddha's view. This is what we can accomplish. I mean, I'm really looking forward to it. It sounds great. No fear, no delusions, no neuroses, only wisdom, only joy, only compassion, only kindness. This is what Buddha's telling us. This is our natural state. So something good to look forward to. Any questions, please? I have to have a drink. I'm getting hoarse. Any questions? Yes. Um, Robin has asked, how do you know if you're a reincarnation of someone? Do you just know it or are you recognized by a more advanced Lama? If you've got any wisdom at all, if you've learned, if you're up to grade three music, you're asking me, how do you know you've achieved grade three? Well, honey, if you don't know grade three music and you don't know that you've got that achievement, then you haven't achieved it. So by definition, wisdom is knowing where you're at. So a person who's a reincarnated Lama who got clairvoyance, you know, they might they won't tell you this, but by definition, of course you know it. If, 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 you, if you're a reincarnated Lama who's got wisdom, you would know it. But if you, you know, we're all reincarnations of something, but we don't know it because we don't remember. But if you have got wisdom, of course you know it. So when you know something, you know it. That's it. It's not just, oh, you just know it. You don't just, oh, I just know I've passed grade three. Then you're an idiot. You haven't. You've got to know that music with certainty and know that you've achieved that. Like anything, even how do you know, or how do I know that I know that one plus one is two? 
Well, because you've learned it. How do I know I can play the piano? How do I know I can make a cake? Because you've done it. There's experience, it's fact. Same here. How do you know I'm a Buddha? Well, if you are, you know it. If you don't, you haven't achieved it. You're living in la-la land. It's like that. Wisdom is very practical, whatever level of wisdom it is. Even if it's one plus one is two. What else? Uh, Ephesia is asking, is realization of emptiness synonymous with nirvana? Um, that's not, no, it's not. The realization of emptiness, the first moment of it is the first step. The first, direct of a, of a, it's not the first step at all. All of the work we're doing right now is the steps that lead to this first major shift in the mind. When you've got, kar got karma abiding, you've got shamatha, and you have to have that. You have to have access to the subtle level of your mind. As Lama says in the book, it is impossible to realize emptiness experientially, directly, non-conceptually, until you're at a non-conceptual level of mind. So the first moment of a direct non-conceptual insight into emptiness with certainty, that's the second you cut the root of samsara. You can't fall back after that, but you've got a lot more work to do before you achieve liberation. You're still, in, you're still there. You've got more work to do, but you've, you've, you've achieved a major turning point. So the first moment of realizing emptiness is the first step. And eventually in one life or other, working so hard on it, once you've removed all the obstacles to liberation in that particular life, you've achieved your nirvana. And then if you're on the Theravadan path, you'll, you'll zap off into bliss. You won't come back. And if you're on the Mahayana path, at a certain point you'll achieve it, but you will come back because you've got bodhicitta. But, it's, but nirvana is when you've cut the obstacles to liberation. But the first moment of realizing emptiness is the first step. And when you've perfected that, then you've got your nirvana. There's more work to do, in other words. But that point is a major turning point. It's a paradigm shift that you do because you can't turn back. You can't fall back after that. So we've had shamatha in countless lifetimes. We can even have had bodhicitta. But until we've realized emptiness, the first moment of it, that non-conceptual direct insight, and we've, you know, until we've got that, we can't fall back after that. We can only go forward. I hope that's clear, Afisha. What else? Uh, Francis is asking, um, could you please explain again what is non-duality? Non-duality is a synonym for emptiness. It's a synonym. There's many levels of non-duality, but the non-duality we're talking here is when you finally cut this sense of a separate me separate from others, putting it very simply. And that real that non-duality is finally when you realize emptiness, finally when you become a Buddha, actually. I mean, the even now the non we could say duality now. Um, Francis, even in the simple sense, we can say there's this disconnect between reality and ourself. There's always because we've got these misconceptions and we're kind of there's this disconnect between how things are and how we see things. You could argue very much that's a symptom of duality. When you realize emptiness, you've cut that certain level of it. But let me use it broadly as a synonym for emptiness. What else? Uh, Wendy is asking, what is the personality? Is it just a bundle of tendencies? Yeah, that's, exactly and, yeah. that's it. A bundle of tendencies. So look at the personality of a lion, a dog, a human. The thing is we set out personality traits in stone. I'm angry. I can't change. I'm jealous. We, we limit ourselves. So that all the things are there. You've got a tendency to lie or steal or love or hate, but that you, they're, very, they're not set in stone. So you can perfect your personality. You can grow yourself into this marvellous person who's beyond delusions, and now you've perfected kindness. But we tend to think, you see, in our culture, 
neuroscience and in psychology, we observe the qualities of a person and we see the brain. So we think that's who we are. I've got a bit of anger, a bit of love, a bit of kindness. We give equal status to the neuroses and the virtues and we set them in stone. I'm this kind of person. And we overestimate, over-exaggerate it. So we can change what it says. The delusions are adventitious. They're there now, but we can, we can finish them and we can grow the virtues. So you turn, you're, in other words, you're a work in progress. What you're doing is you're turning yourself from this kind of person with a bunch of idiot tendencies to a, a Buddha. Then there, then all your tendencies are perfection. You know, all your tendencies are just only virtue and wisdom. That's it. So we can change. But yes, our personality is that. And we come into this life program with those tendencies from having done them before. It's one of the four ways that karma ripens, a bunch of tendencies, a bunch of habits, whether they're Mother Teresa habits or Hitler habits, you know, but they're all not set in stone. That's why we can change. It's a very marvellous, uplifting idea that we can change, you know, this is profound. Someone else? What else? Um, just the end of Wendy's question, she just noted that Lama Zopa and Lama Yeshi seem so different in nature. They are, yes. So then what's the point there? So the assumption in your question, Wendy, I'm just if you if you if I'm wrong, you please say put your hands up. There's Wendy. What so what do you mean by that, darling? Wendy, do you want to answer me? Yes. You, yes. Um, oh, wait, I, darling, what do you mean I, by that? Um, just that there's tendencies, but then like in this rebirth, right? Mm. They appeared like such different personalities, and then if Lama Zopa passed away and then was reborn. It's almost like you're you're given a whole new personality. Oh, okay, so uh, is there an assumption then? Is there an assumption in what you're asking that if you've got only virtuous qualities, we all should look the same? Is that an assumption? I think in your mind, isn't there? If you've got rid of, I mean, is that what, what you're assuming? Why no, you I'm curious. I, I, I'm just curious about this aspect of personality because, in a sense, they both had virtuous development yes, okay. so there is an assumption in your mind that if we all had only virtues and only had wisdom then we'd all be the same there's assumption there isn't there yes That's yes true. i think okay, so good. good point wendy no you see it's not like that because we've got different styles look at some people they're thin and quiet some people are fat and noisy we've got all got different styles and when you turn into when you turn into a buddha and i turn into a buddha we don't turn into a clone of each other and all look the same like a bunch of lemmings you know you turn into a buddha looking like you and sounding like you and i turn into a buddha looking like me loud and noisy in fact so we, we've all got styles so when you take the vajrayana model look at all the different deities the vajrayana model there are these thousands of different manifestations of buddha they're all perfect. They've all got wisdom. They've all got love. They've all got compassion. But some are girls, some are boys, some are peaceful, some are wrathful. So they're different shapes and sizes because that's how we all are. So that's why when you pick a Yidam, you pick a Buddha that you have an affinity with based on this life, then that's the one you become. So maybe your Yidam is this wrathful male dude with 47 legs and arms and God knows what else. That could be your person and you become that. Maybe a man has his, as his deity, as his yidam, he has gorgeous looking Vajrayogini, the manifestation of desire energy. So that's the relative reality that we take on forms and shapes and sizes suitable to our life and suitable to the way we help others. They're all different shapes. So Buddhas come in different shapes and sizes, but they've all got the same wisdom and the same virtue. That is never different. It just manifests differently. You understand? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. What else? 
Uh, Dave Bruce had a question about good practice, but I wonder, Dave, would you like to ask that question? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand it in the chat. Did you want to ask, Dave? Okay, go yeah. for it, Dave. Um, okay, so just that when something happens or I'm starting to um, get more, shall we say, sensitive to a delusion occurring, I'm starting to get angry, frustrated, whatever, Okay, I now am training myself to stop and go, is this real? So yes, I'm feeling pain, but the pain isn't real, but I am feeling real in a conventional sense, but it's not, etc. cetera. Okay. Then I say, I say um, that the person causing the pain, say, is not, um, sorry, that's why I wrote it, because I'm trying, uh, the per, the per, person causing my pain is suffering and therefore rather than getting angry which is the delusion i need to have compassion for their suffering okay. and i'm just wondering that's if this is this is it real what you know is it real what do i do that that analysis okay. that i go through for everything okay. is that yeah. It's good. So, Dave, if we can take this analogy of a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion, and then we look at the lamb rim. Junior, so the first scope and the second scope of the lamb rim, the first scope is you abide by the laws of karma, control your body and speech. Then you get to the next level and now you look into your mind. This is all the wisdom wing. This is the work you do on yourself. So the work there is you recognize it's due to past karma. If a person just punched me in the nose or they're mean to me, and one of the, the major practices, the analysis you do is this is due to karma. And this really takes time. But that's the first one. Well, I mean, why am I blaming somebody else? I mean, I have a friend, a Tibetan friend, who was, you know, in, in, in the first kind of mini uprising in Tibet in 87. And so because karma for them is in their bones, it has been for 1,200 years in Tibet, it's just, the, it's just the view of the universe that they take as a given, just like we take neuroscience and materialism as a given in our culture. We don't question it. Do you understand my point? But for them, karma is so embedded in their mind for centuries. So for them, they. It's, so I said to him when he was telling me about the suffering, he's been abused, his father had been murdered, brother murdered, you know, and I said, it was sad. And I said, do you ever get angry, Jigdol? And he laughed very casually and he said, Rabina, angry, what for? It's our own fault. What he meant was, it's due to karma, Rabina, but this is a, a tough one for us. And if we really analyze, this is the first analysis day before you even have compassion. So the first analysis is when we begin to understand karma, which is quite profound, even though it's junior school, it means it's sort of like if you just punch me in the nose and then I punch you back, you don't burst into tears and say, how dare you punch me? But I'll say, but you just punched me. Well, the difference is this person's mean to you because it's two and a half lives ago, you were mean to them. So when you know it's your punch coming back, you would never get angry because angry saying, anger is saying, how dare you do that to me, which assumes you don't deserve it. Well, with, with virtue as well, if I've just given you a thousand dollars, you don't go, you know, you just, you know, you, 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 um, that's because of you've been, uh, you've been generous in the past. You don't go, oh, aren't I lucky? Rabina gave me a thousand dollars. Luck is not rational. This karma is logic. So when you know karma, this is the first practice. Forget even knowing your mind, Dave. Forget compassion. So the first one is this is due to my past actions. So you, you know, you got egg on your face. It just came back to you, and you realize, well, I hadn't purified that, and there it is. Look at the result. I'm an idiot. And then you really, that's a powerful practice. And we often skip over that one. Then the next level of practice is to start unpacking that anger and you start to see how it's an assumption that you don't deserve it. But when you know karma, you know it's meaningless. That's why my friend said, What do you mean, anger, Rubina? Don't be ridiculous. 
It wouldn't even arise in his mind to be angry because he has such a deep confidence in the view of karma. That's already profound. Then you look in your mind more deeply. Then, then once you've sorted that out, and that's the wisdom wing, then it's easy to have compassion because you know you harmed them in the past and that's why they're punching you back right now. So almost bodhisattvas even take responsibility and realize if I hadn't punched that guy, he wouldn't be punching me now. So they have a sense of compassion because they realize they're the one who caused it. So it's levels and levels of practice. First karma, then your mind. That's the wisdom wing. Then compassion wing. Do you understand? Yeah, thank you. Good, Dave. Yes. All the things you said were right, but it's very orderly. You know, yep. and realizing it's empty, that's even the wisdom wing as well. Well, there's no intrinsic nature. So what am I worried about? And have a crack, you know, crack a joke. Then compassion comes after because when you realize your own suffering and how you suffer because of anger and past karma, you then have compassion with the person because you realize due to their negativity, they're going to suffer in the future. That's the real basis of compassion. That that mm. person doesn't know that they've just harmed themselves by harming you. That's the yeah, real wisdom cause... of compassion. Because um, I used to be, a, let's just say, a very angry person. I would yes. be the first person to grab them back and punch them twice right. as hard. Yeah. Whereas now I find my attachment or my anger, it's a lot, I'm a long way from being perfect. But, right. you know, um, I, my wants are less, shall we say, and my anger yeah. is less. Good. Yeah. It's fantastic. Then you're really practicing, Dave. You should be delighted. Because you can see the result, you know, it's genuine. You really can see you're lessening your anger because you've used analysis and logic. And that's exactly correct. That's exactly the result of practice. Well done. Amazing. Okay. Thank you. Good. Thank you so much. What else, Amy? Anybody else? Uh, yeah. Catherine um, has asked, is it correct that Buddhas will manifest in the aspect with respect to personality or style that is most beneficial for the beings that they have strong karmic connection with? That's exactly right. That's how it works. That's exactly right. So then let's just talk about what a Buddha is. Okay? We mentioned this before, but let's talk about what a Buddha is. So the actual, the word Buddha actually refers to the mind, the enlightened mind, the omniscient mind, the powerful mind, and mind we can't communicate with. So because a person becomes a Buddha because they're driven by amazing compassion, then the logic is that a Buddha wants to help others, but they can't just sit in the sky looking subtle. You know, they've got to manifest in bodies. So the relative Buddha is the body. And we'll talk about this when we talk about refuge after all this session. So the relative Buddha is the body. The absolute Buddha, the actual Buddha is the mind. Unmanifest, all-knowing, all-pervasive, all-compassionate, all-wise consciousness. But we need to access that. So out of their compassion, they manifest. And there's two kinds of bodies. I mentioned this, I think, briefly. I can't remember. So one body is the one that we can see, like Shakyamuni Buddha. That's the one that's called the emanation body. We can see that one, the regular people like you and me. Then there's a more subtle body made of light, which is mainly you see this in Tantra, all the thousands of different Buddhas. And they're all just, they're subtle light manifestations that only the great Arya Bodhisattvas can see in their meditation. Like I mentioned, Lama Tsongkhapa, that Man Lama Tsongkhapa could see Manjushri directly, this Buddha of wisdom in a subtle light body. They're more subtle because their mind is more subtle. So then in Tantra, so in Sutra, you've got Shakyamuni Buddha. He's the manifestation of Buddha in this conventional form, looking like you and me, you know, a human being, the Nimanakaya, emanation body. Then in Tantra, you've got, it's called Vajradhara. It's the bodhisattva aspect, not looking like a monk, but more radiant and gorgeous, like the way they call the bodhisattva aspect, looking beautiful. You see all the pictures and the statues. He's like the boss Buddha in Tantra. Shakyamuni is in Sutra. 
So under him, under, under Vajrayana, there are five Buddha, five Buddha families, the five Buddhas that each of which is a particular grouping and all they are is manifestations of different psychological qualities. So one way of describing those five, that they're manifestations of purified delusions. Tantric philosophy and psychology is more sophisticated than the, the other level. So there's different Buddhas. So for example, Shakshobhya, in the Bodhisattva aspect, he's a manifestation of anger energy. Um, Amitabha, who's red, is the manifestation of attachment energy. And each of them is a group, is like a boss of a, like a family, they call, Buddha families. And underneath it are all the hundreds of other Buddhas, all of which are manifestations of different psychological qualities, either peaceful or wrathful or male or female or whatever. It's, also, it's, like, it's like, basically, it's like, it's psychology. They're manifestations of different Buddhas, and there are hundreds of them. And they're all Buddha, but they're different shapes and sizes, just like we are different shapes and sizes, different personality traits, like the question was. So, you know, in your life, you, you know, in this particular life, you, because of your personality, you, you have a connection with a certain Buddha. And that means the Buddha's manifesting in certain forms for the sake of sentient beings. You know, for example, I'm doing the, we, we maybe read sometimes, and I've done, I'm doing the biography of one Lama, one of our great yogi Lamas who spent years and years up in the mountains, you know, on the border of Nepal, India, uh, Nepal and Tibet. He was a great tantric yogi and his, his yidam, his meditation deity, was Vajrayogini. Now, when you meet him, he's passed away now, he was this wrathful grandfather. Like he's a wrathful, looking old, like, a, like an old country bumpkin grandpa. He was really wrathful, but he's actually a manifestation of this pure, pure being called Vajrayogini. As Lama Zopa said, she, he lived in Vajrayogini's pure land. You couldn't tell. So some woman, you know, some woman looking very dainty and nice, but might be there, you know, might be Yamantaka. He'd scare the life out of you if you saw him as Yamantaka with 47 legs and arms and the manifestation of anger energy. So there are all these different Buddhas uh, suited to our personality. And that's the one you, you choose a particular one in this life. But they're all the same Buddhas, like different people getting dressed up in different roles in a play, you know. So yes, your answer is yes. That was a long answer to your question. The answer is yes. So what else? Uh, a a follow-up to that, Venerable Rabina, from Doris, is how do you know what your yidam is? By knowing your own mind, baby. You have to know your own mind. Sometimes our lama will tell us, if you're a bit sick and you don't work it out, for years and years I thought one deity was my yidam, and then lama zopa barges into me and gives me a big shock and tells me it's another one. I didn't know. I'd never have learned it, but he told me, luckily. But some people recognise, some people know. So you, you check up the one you like, but often I tell you one way of describing, one way of knowing Doris is if you know your main delusion. So usually attachment, anger, pride, or maybe jealousy. There's, I mean, there's millions of delusions, but any one of those is probably one of our main delusions. Once you know your main delusion, you can begin to recognize your yidam. So you get to know your mind, get to know your mind. And how you know your main delusion is that the way you suffer. So if you if got if pride we've all got the delusions okay but if pride is our main delusion in your life you will suffer terribly from how you're seen by others you always be so injured so offended so hurt by people if anger is your main delusion you can even tell by looking at a really dark looking face you know really kind of angry looking if attachment is your main delusion you're up and down like a yo-yo so you've got to know your main delusion and that'll often tell you who your yidam is I tell you go on. We need all in the end. We need all of them. But you choose one that's your main one. And eventually you pray. So pray to your guru, Yidam. Pray to your guru to guide you to recognize your Yidam. You know. Go on, what else? Huh? Um, yes. 
Yeah, uh, a question from Hannah. Uh, if there is no inherent self, then how does karma manifest to us personally from past lives, whether good or bad? Wouldn't that karma be attached to something that has continuity? Wouldn't that karma stop at the cessation of that person's existence? Very interesting point, Hannah. So we take the view of continuity of consciousness as a river of mental moments. So Hannah, her continuity of consciousness, and the name Hannah is labelled on this particular package at this particular time, but that consciousness that we label, you know, combined with Hannah's body, is, is the, the consciousness is a continuity of previous moments of Hannah's mind. The body comes from mummy and daddy, no problems. But the consciousness comes from previous moments of Hannah's mind, when she was a dog or she was a human or a mummy or a daddy or a God knows what in the past. She said all of these. So all the karmic imprints of everything you've ever done and said and thought are implanted in your mind. And then the particular karmic seeds that produce Hannah's personality and Hannah's life and Hannah's body and Hannah's mummy and daddy and Hannah's life, they were triggered before you stopped breathing. At the past life, it could have been Mary, it could have been Fred, it could have been a dog, it could have been an ant. But the particular karmic seeds you've planted, they all were triggered at the time you died. And then you ran like a magnet to Hannah's mummy's fallopian tube and joined Hannah's daddy's egg or sperm there. And then, you, then the, the new package came into this life as a result of the karma of, of Hannah. So, you know, the causes of who you are, the type of body you've got, your tendencies, your experiences, and your environmental result, they're all from Hannah, from the past life. And then everything you think and do and say now will produce the future lives, you know? So what was your question again? I forgot. What was the question? Say it um, again. Yeah, so um, wouldn't the karma be attached to something that has continuity? Yeah, your mind, your, your consciousness, darling. Yes, your consciousness is beginningless and endless, Hannah. So when you die, like I mentioned before briefly, there's a deconstruction process from gross to subtle to very subtle. So all the karmic imprints are programmed in your consciousness. Everything you've ever said and done and thought is programmed in your mind. It can't go astray. So a particular set of those seeds were triggered before you stopped breathing. And that's how what Hannah is the product of those particular karmic seeds. But you've got millions of other karmic seeds in your consciousness. And you can go to different lifetimes and they will never go astray. So that's why we've got to cultivate the good ones and try and purify the bad ones. So next life will be an even better life so you can keep moving. So yes, they're attached to your mind, darling. They're attached to your consciousness, which is beginningless and endless. Does that make sense, Hannah? If not, ask me a question again. So Hannah, you can speak to me if you like, if it's not clear. So if Hannah's sorting out what she wants to do, uh, Afisha had a question, I saw that. Yes. Uh, Afisha asks, am I accurate in assuming that developing the wisdom wing is what helps change conditioning and eventually karma and are karma and conditioning interdependent? Wisdom wing, if you're on, okay, using the lamb rim as your structure, Afisha, and we're looking at the Hinayana and Mahayana, not trying, you know, Theravadan, whatever. Theravadan is one of the 18 remaining subschools of the many, many, many subschools that existed at the time of the Buddha and afterwards of what's called the Hinayana path. This is how it is. So if you look at the Lam Rim, it's got the lower scope of teachings, the middle scope, the great scope. So the lower scope is what I like to call junior school, and that's where you abide by the laws of karma. You control your body and speech. Then you get to high school, and now you start to get some shamatha. If you're on the Theravadan path, you get the shamatha, you control your body, you control your mind, you get rid of attachment, you get concentration, you realize emptiness, you perfect it in one life, you achieve liberation, and then baby, you're out of here. You graduated high school, you graduated the second scope. If you're on the Mahayana path, you go through the same stages, but even if you realize emptiness and realize you're in nirvana, you'll carry on onto the compassion wing. 
So the wisdom wing is the first and second scopes. The wisdom wing is junior school and high school. The wisdom wing is the Theravadan path. And you'd achieve your liberation, you're out of here. The Mahayana is those components and you add university to it. And then you are postgraduate, which is Tantra. Does that make sense, Afisha? You have to speak to me if you want to, both of you. Yes, okay. it does. Thank you. Good job. Okay, very good. Okay, honey. So what about Hannah? Are you happy with your answer, Hannah? Maybe Hannah's gone. Where's Hannah? No, I'm right here. You're there, darling. So does that answer make sense? Um, it does. So I just want to make sure I understand. So sure. there is no permanent me, which I feel I understand that. I'm, I'm just a cause and condition. Good. But the consciousness is a continuation of many different people or things and animals. It's a, well, it's a continuity. It's your. It's the one thing that's a continuity is your consciousness, and you got trillions of everything you think and do and say in all these countless lives leave seeds in that mind. It's the simple way to put it. So, in this in, from your past life, not more than a few weeks before you found your way to mummy's Hannah's mummy's fallopian tube, you were in another rebirth, and there are trillions of karmic seeds in that in that mind. But some of them were triggered at the time you died, which then produced the package called Hannah. But this is mm -hmm. all those seeds from countless lives. You're still lugging them along. But that's why we've got to get ahead of the game by doing all the purification practices and put atomic bombs under the negative ones and keep practicing virtue so that you get another decent life and you get ahead of the game and eventually you can realize emptiness and get the hell out of the whole rubbish, you know? Mm -hmm. So the continuity of mind is beginningless and endless. But at different times, a different package manifests due to the karmic seeds. You might be a dog or, a, you know, other types of beings. But we want, to, we want to keep on the human track, though, because that's what we can get enlightened in. So the continuity of mind is beginningless and endless, according to the Mahayana view. And the, the trillions of different lives you've had, everything you think and do and say programs that mind. But we want, so this at this life being Hannah, she's got a human body due to virtue, got good tendencies. She wants to practice a spiritual path. That's why she's here. You've got good experiences. People, some people are nice to you and good things happen. You've got money in the bank. All that's due to your virtue. And then, you the, and then you've got a good environmental karma. So the four ways of karma ripens, the type of rebirth, your tendencies, your experiences at the hands of others, and your environmental karma. So with a human body, at least we've got the choice to be to access our virtue so we can keep practicing, to purify the negative seeds so they don't ripen, so we keep getting a human body until we're out of this nonsense. Does that make sense or no? It does. Um, so is the the consciousness piece separate for each person or is it shared? No, no. Well, even shared, put it like this. If my mind... Okay, when you're a Buddha, Hannah, and I'm a Buddha, you might as well say we're the same because there's no longer any dualism. There's only compassion. There's only wisdom. Your mind pervades the universe. It knows everything. My mind pervades the universe. It knows everything. It's just pure, unmanifest consciousness. We're not going to bump into each other. We're going to be the same mind, the same Buddha. But as a relative level, we're all individual separate minds. And in other words, if your mind and mine were right now the same, every time you got angry, I couldn't help but be angry as well. Every time you played piano, I'd learn to play piano too. And that's clearly not true. Each of us imprints our own mind with our own tendencies. But when you're Buddha and I'm Buddha and we're all Buddha, it's like just as one Buddha. But at the moment, we're separate individual beings due to karma. And, you know, all, I mean, look at the trillions of beings. Look at the ants, the dogs, the humans, all the different personalities. You understand? We've all got the same potential, though, to be free right. of something. You understand? Yeah. Good. Good, Hannah. Thank you, darling. Very kind. Thanks. Thank you so much. What else? What else, people? Uh, another question from Afisha. How are Sutra and Tantra different in the focus on realizing emptiness? And how important is this realization on each path? Oh, I understand. Yeah, emptiness is the same. No difference. 
the same emptiness. On the Theravadan path and the Mahayana, emptiness is the same. It can't be different. It's the same emptiness. But on the Mahayana path, because you've added this enormous, powerful bodhicitta, it gives huge more power to the person you become. And on the Tantra, it's the same. But there are different ways of presenting it, different ways of talking about it. But emptiness is the same. It can never be different. But it's the way, the point is the Tantric path as Lama Yeshi says, Tantra is highly technical. It's, it's a very speedy way to get to a subtle level of mind. It's a very, because we've got to get to the subtle level of mind to realize emptiness. So the subtle level of mind that we accomplish when we get shamatha, which is the sutra path, is much grosser than the subtle mind we get when we practice Tantra. So in other words, Tantra is a quicker way to get to the subtle level of mind, the subtlest level. But the sutra practice is not strong enough to get you to the subtlest level. It'll take you a lot longer. Even on the Mahayana path, it'll take you a lot longer. But the tantric methods are very brilliant and very skillful that help us quickly get to the subtle level so you can quickly realize emptiness. That's the difference. But the emptiness is the same, Afisha. It's the methods that are, are quicker and more sophisticated. Do you understand, honey? Yes, I do. Thank you, Venerable Rubina. Thank you very much, sweetheart. Okay, what else? Any more questions? I think the questions are important on this topic, you know. Go on. Uh, Rachel is asking, um, what do we do when we think we know what our main delusion is? You just keep working on it. It's amazing. It's wonderful. You keep working on it. I and mean, we've all got all of the delusions, but one is a particular way you suffer, you know. So when you get to really realize it, then you keep on progressing on your practice. If you've taken the lay vows and you take the bodhisattva vows and you take the tantric vows, you just keep moving on your practice. You have a group where you go, you have a teacher, you just keep moving. Like in any body of knowledge, you keep moving, you keep moving, you keep moving. Keep moving, you keep moving. Does that make sense, Jack? We need good teachers. We need good mentors, you know. We need good teachers to guide us. I mean, this is uncharted territory, for God's sake. So the sooner we get find teachers, the better. And that's up to us. What else? Mm. Uh, Jack has asked, would it be better to focus on a pure land rebirth or human? That's a very good question, Jack. Lama's opened his book, How to uh, Face Death Without Fear, which has come out now as a paperback, and I super recommend it. I'm going to be teaching that for, um, where? A couple of weeks' time, I think, for the trip to Norby Ling right here in the Santa Fe. The timing will be wrong for some of you. But anyway, we're going to use Lama's Open's book. I've done, I do it many, I've just done it in Brazil. It's a very popular topic. People love studying it. So in there, um, Rimacek talks about all the time that the benefit, the options are a, a human rebirth or a pure land rebirth. So what's pure land? So like I mentioned before, you've got different ways that the Buddha mind manifests for the sake of sentient beings. So Shakyamuni Buddha is a, looks like a human being. He manifests looking like you and me. And the environment he lives in is this world that we live in. So when a Buddha manifests in the subtle light body, which the Arya Bodhisattvas can see in their meditation, when the Buddha manifests in the subtle light body, let's say as Manjushri, Tara, the countless other Buddhas, because it's a, a relative reality, a relative form made of light, if we can imagine this, they're blissful beings made of light, then they have an environment also. They don't start floating in the empty sky. You know, they create also a pure land, an environment in which they function. So when you see these mandalas, you know, these circular drawings, all that is is an architectural drawing of a pure land of one of these many Buddhas. Each of them has their own environment. And they each 
They, and they're all made of, just like their mind, their body is made of light, so their environment is made of light. So most of these pure lands of these Buddhas, you can only get born in those when you've got high realizations, when you're an Ari Bodhisattva or something, when you realize emptiness. But Lama Zopa talks in this particular book all the time about Amitabha's pure land. That Amitabha, um, that this is the only pure land that an ordinary person who hasn't realized emptiness yet, that an ordinary person can be born in. And the advantage of a pure land, if you can try and conceptualize such a thing, a subtle level of reality, we've got no gross body, you know, you're, you're surrounded by Buddhas, it's all radiant and blissful. You don't need sex and drugs and rock and roll and toilets and sleep. Only this gross body, we need that. So you can get enlightened very quickly. And the only reason to go there is to get enlightened quickly. So you can come back down to the human realm, come back to the human realm to benefit others. So it's it's brilliant to be, get born in Amitabha's pure land. But the only reason to get born there is so you can quickly become enlightened. That's all. Driven by Bodhicitta, in other words. And then you come back to the human realm. I remember there's a monk in Kopan in the office there. The people all say that the lamas have said that his recent rebirth was in a pure land. So he's come back as a human. He told me off. Remember, I did something to my room at Copa and he told me off. People don't tell me off normally, they're scared of me. But he told me off, so I thought, that's a good boy. He's very rough with me. You do not do that, this is not your room, he said. I was very, very, I had to confess to him, apologize. He's a wonderful monk. <laughs> it was very funny. So that clear, I hope, Jack? Namazova talks about it, how to get born in Amitabha's pure land. It's in the book. It did. Thank you very much. Good, good. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, darling. What else, folks? Question? Uh, Matt is asking, what is it about Tantra that makes it faster and more effective? It's just, it's just a particular, as Lama Yeshi says, Tantra is highly technical. It's a particular method. Quite simply, it's a particular method of it's, it is, I, I mean, to describe the method is another thing, but it is a method of quickly getting the mind to be a very subtle level. That's one way of saying. That's all. So as to why it's quicker, then you've got to understand there's much more to, to be understood, you know. Um, another way of talking about Tantra, there's different ways of talking about it. The first level of, okay, if we take attachment as the main delusion Buddha effectively in the Four Noble Truths says we suffer because of attachment. Attachment is rooted in ego grasping, but effectively day-to-day -day life, and especially in this human realm where we are the product of attachment. We are the manifestation of attachment. What do you think the five senses are? These five parts of us driven by attachment, this junkie in us to get satisfaction via our five senses. So attachment effectively is the main cause of our suffering. We're in a desire realm. Desire, attachment, they mean the same thing. So... The very first level of attachment is control the servants of attachment, control the servants of the delusions, control your body and speech. So at that level, you, it's like if you're an alcoholic, nobody expects you to give up addiction or attachment. They're the same meaning. Nobody expects you to give up addiction to alcohol while you continue to drink alcohol. We all know that's insanity. So what do you do? You've got to give up the object. That's the first level of practice. So given that we're all driven by attachment, we first control the servants of attachment, which is our body and speech. So when you've got severe attachment or severe anger, you can you, you remove yourself from the objects that activate it. That's the first level of practice. You're playing safe. You're controlling yourself 
by not engaging in the object so that you don't create negative karma. It's for your benefit. Then you begin to harness the energy of the body and speech. And that means you begin to harness attachment. Now you can go to the next level where you deal directly with the attachment itself because you're much more sophisticated because you've harnessed the crazy body and speech. Now you can, so if you use the analogy of attachment to a piece of chocolate cake, we keep a very simple example. The first level, you can't control yourself. So you leave the chocolate cake on the plate. You do not have it. You calm your body and speech down. Now, eventually, when you've really gone beyond, you're really able to control your body and speech. At the next level, you now get to the attachment. You get to the root of attachment, and you unpack and unravel the conceptual story that causes you to be such a junkie. So at this point, you begin to get some renunciation because you've unpacked and unraveled your attachment, which is profound. Now you could argue, because you're more controlled with your body, speech, and mind, you could even now engage maybe a little bit in the chocolate cake without going berserk because you're under control. You've harnessed your body, your speech, and your mind. That's what renunciation means. You're really an advanced person by now. Amazing. So the very first level, you leave the chocolate cake alone because your attachment's out of control. Now you're under control of your attachment. You can even taste the chocolate cake without being too berserk because you're so incredible. You've got such renunciation. Now you go to the Mahayana path and now you start creating, developing love and compassion for others. And at this level, your love and compassion is so stupendous that you can even eat cake for the sake of another now and it will not disturb you because your attachment is so subdued. Now you get to the next level where you start to realize the emptiness of the chocolate cake. Now it's easy peasy to have the chocolate cake. It's nothing because you know there's no intrinsic chocolate cake. But now you even do more. Now you go to Tantra. Now you go to postgraduate. And now at that level, not only can you even eat the chocolate cake without going berserk, the Buddha would recommend this highest level of practice is you consciously engage in the object of attachment because Tantra is a method to energize the bliss that arises from contact with attachment objects because we've got a body made of the five senses. It's just the genius yogis in the past, including the great Hindu yogis, that are able to understand the subtle level of the physical nature of the body and how it's a sensory body based upon attachment. So when you've completely harnessed attachment, when you're beyond attachment, because you're in the body of attachment, you're able to utilize the bliss that comes from contact with the chocolate cake consciously and that and that bliss combined that bliss is like a, a, a like a rocket that gets you easily in your concentration makes the bliss the bliss is like a rocket that makes your concentration very subtle very quickly and then you can easily become enlightened so it's a question of degree you, first, you leave the cake alone. Next, you can begin to ha have a bit of it. Next, you can even do it out of compassion. It won't disturb you. Then you realize emptiness and there's no problem at all. And now you engage in it consciously because it's been found due to these brilliant yogis and their understanding of the subtle physical energies, highly technical, as Amiyashi says, that on the combina with, combina with the combination of, of concentration combined with bliss, bliss is like a rocket boost or the opposite of a rocket boost, gets you to the subtlest level very, very quickly. So it's utilizing bliss which only the person who's given up attachment can do. Because you're no longer in the thrall of delusions. You've gone beyond.
It's a skillful, quick method using bliss that's what's triggered by contact with attachment objects by the beings who've given up attachment. It gets this, the bliss gets the mind to the subtlest level. And with that, you can become enlightened quickly. So, so quickly, apparently. Hope that helps. What else? I think I we haven't finished, but I think we finished. It's sort of like finished. There's only 22. You can always finish early. Venerable Rabina, if there yeah. is time, if you could read to us the Panchen Lama's text, that would be... Oh, so that's cool. right. You want that, don't you? Okay, let's do it. Just uh, for, the, for the transmission of the text, we can read that. Okay, let's get it. We have a, a couple more questions here, Venerable Rabina. Oh, Tell me yeah. the question. Uh, um, Eleanor wanted to ask a question. Eleanor, do you want to unmute yourself and... Ask me the question, baby. Go on. Can you hear me? I can, can you hear me? I can oh. go and you talk to me. Thank you. It's not I didn't want to say, I didn't want to ask a question. Oh, I wanted you want to, to share to... an experience. I wanted to share something that happened to me about I was nursing a little boy who was five years of age. He was yes. born with severe disabilities. Yes. And he died. He died. Yes. And yes. after his death, he was with between his parents on the bed. And yeah. after his death, I looked at the foot of the bed. This is oh. before I was involved with Buddhism. Yes. And he was sitting as a little Buddha on the corner of the end of the bed. Well, there you go. I mean, this is yeah. this is very fascinating, Eleanor. And this is yeah. something interesting. I often say, especially children can get can some people who are body suffers can consciously choose a rebirth in which they suffer terribly. As in order to purify their karma very quickly yeah. to become a yeah. special thing. That's very interesting. Yeah. I bet you got a surprise. I did. I thought it was a great blessing, actually. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes. Did you yeah. tell his mum? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And we, was, we've been very close friends ever since. Wonderful. This is a wonderful yeah. story. Thank you, darling. Thank, thank you. Thank very you. Sweet. Thank you, sweetheart. So nice. Mm. Okay, so why don't we read the text, shall we? Or are there more questions? As two more questions. Go on then. Um, Jai is asking, is there an ending of this process, death, rebirth, endeavour for enlightenment? Oh, God, that's the whole point of this whole discussion, to get the hell out of this bloody rubbish and become a Buddha. <laughs> then you can come back again and again to help people because you're in bliss and you're happy. Yes, honey, become a Buddha. Get rid of the rubbish, grow the goodness, and then you've got the power to manifest what you like about the universe for the sake of others. And you won't be disturbed because you're blissfully happy and joyful and wise and full of compassion. That's the bottom line, baby. How does that sound? See, it depends uh, on your view. I understand that, but I've got a bit more here. Oh, if, figure pattern, go. Yep. Is it like it's endless, okay? Because there are seemingly endless beings that will have to go yes. through this process. Yes. So right. this is what will be, I mean, I know once we become a Buddha, it'll all be good. We won't yes. care, but it, it yes. sounds like it is endless. Also, okay, so I'm on with that. Yes. Um, does this have a starting point? Did it ever start? No, this is what's interesting, Jai. It's a good question, darling. We all, the Buddha's saying we all believe there is a beginning. But the, the point about the beginning for the Buddha, even at the level of even at the level of impermanence, which is a lower level teaching, that it's not a possibility or cause and effect. It's by definition impossible to have a first moment of something because a first moment implies it didn't have a previous 
cause. So if we posit the law of cause and effect, which Buddha says runs the universe, and I think we agree scientifically, then you can't, it's like, as the Dalai Lama said, yeah, big bang, no problem, just not the first big bang, that's all. So no, as shocking as it sounds to us, and only because we grasp at thinking there must be a beginning, the Buddha says, no, necessarily, everything is beginning less. So if the universe consists of matter, the four elements, and the minds are the minds are non-physical, then as His Holiness says, Big Bang, no problem, just not the first Big Bang. So as nutty as it sounds to us, our minds and universes are necessarily beginningless. You can't posit the first moment because that implies this is not the product of a cause, which means the whole logic of cause and effects collapses into a heap of nonsense. What do you think? Jai? Yes, I, I, you know, like I would have been trained with the argument about the uncaused cause. So I'm that. tell me about that. I've never heard of that. What's that? One? Is that a scientific view? Uncaused cause. Uh, that goes back to, I think, Middle Ages, possibly Aristotle. Oh, okay. It's a philosophical concept. Yeah, and uncaused cause would be the divine, would be God. Oh, there you go. Now that's right. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. But so that's that, what's permeating yeah, us. That and concept. that's exactly the Buddha does not have that view. And the point is the Buddha's simple question, like if you're a naughty girl at school, the first question you're going to ask is, well, who, I'm sorry, who caused God? But you're not allowed to ask that question. And that's where the Buddha, he's arguing with the concept of a creator, not out of being a rude person, because he says it's just, it's not feasible to have a, a, a thing that isn't caused. It's not feasible. So that's a shocking view to think that God have a cause. And even more shocking, I mean, this is, I remember Jai in Melbourne, I went to, um, I gave a talk at the Catholic University. They asked me, some conference was on, I had a 20 minute slot. And I remember, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. So I looked up the morning I got there, I looked up the Merriam-Webster dictionary for the definition of God. And I discovered three essential qualities in omniscience, infinite compassion, infinite power well they are they are the characteristics of a buddha the difference is christianity asserts that energy is permanent and uncaused and is the source of the universe the buddha's view is that everybody's mind has the potential to become a buddha that there's no need for a creator and there's no such possibility of an uncaused cause it's not possible for the buddha and the other point is so my talk was the similarity between the definition of god and buddha i'm not sure if the catholics liked it but that was my talk because this is exactly the right i mean as the christians say there's only one god but like i talked before when you're the buddha and i'm the buddha you effectively were the same buddha the difference is that energy is beginningless because it's nonsense to have an uncaused cause, Buddha would say, argue philosophically. And even also, that's why there's no concept of a soul, which is this permanent thing that is, and the even more abstract for the Buddha is the idea that someone can make you. I mean, if God makes me, as far as the Buddha is concerned, then I am God. I can't never not be God. And that's clearly a heresy to say that. So there's many interesting differences and it's all based on emptiness and dependent arising and, and, and cause and effect. Do you understand what I'm saying, Jai? Yes, thanks very much. That helps a lot. Thanks so much. It's really helpful. Thank you. I mean, it's a really great subject. I love talking about this stuff. You know, it's so fascinating. And it seems to me there are so many views that have seems to me over the centuries, all the great meditators and all the different traditions have seen many similar things, but then also we can see the differences. Do you understand? Joe. Yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So let's read the text. Okay. It's very short. And this is the this is Sorry, the words of the one further question. This <laughs> one okay. question from Rachel: uh, Is there an indicator to let us know when we're ready to practice tantra, or can we start any time? You've got to know where you're at. So, the, as far as Strong Carpus is concerned, the three principal 
qualifications are in terms of the lamrim, you've got some strong renunciation, which means you understand karma, you understand how you cause your own suffering, you understand how you're driven by attachment, and that you want to give this garbage up, you're fed up with suffering. That's renunciation. So some sense of appreciation of the meaning of renunciation and the wish to accomplish it. Then you, the second prerequisite is some sense of bodhicitta, this amazing, outrageous aspiration to be a benefit to others based on compassion, some appreciation for bodhicitta. And third prerequisite, a strong appreciation of the meaning of emptiness. If you've got these three, honey, you're qualified. So look into it, you know. Read Lamayeshi's book, Introduction to Tantra. It's a really good book. It's very, very helpful. Introduction to Tantra, published by Wisdom Publications. It's a marvelous book. It'll help you understand how it fits in the whole path, you know. I'll read the text, wherever it is. Venerable Rabina, we'd like to offer mandala before. Just okay, go on. Yeah. Read it, say it. So imagining offering a, to the Panchen Lama, to the Buddha, a request for this blessing of the text. Go on then, read it. Go on. Sajipuhokishuk <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. Go. I'm going to read it now. Thank you. Okay. Here we go. Root text of the precious Gundan oral tradition. Sometimes it's called, it's called, they're calling it here. The name that they translated here, which is not the usual one, it's usually called the Kagyu, something or other, Gilug, something in Mahamudra or something or other. But here it's called, I'll find the beginning. Where is it? Gosh. Highway of the Conquerors. The Mahamudra root text of the precious Gandhian oral tradition by the first Panchen Lama, Lozang Turki Gyatsang. Homage and pledge to compose Namo Mahamudraya, homage to Mahamudra, the all-pervasive nature of everything. I bow with respect at the feet of the incomparable guru, the lord of siddhas who teaches the naked state of reality, the indivisible and inexpressible sphere of the Bhadra mind. Having condensed the essence of the ocean of sutric and tantric advice, I will write down the instructions of the Gandhian oral tradition of Mahamudra, of the supreme Siddha, Dharma Vajra, and his followers who give sound instruction. This is three parts, preparation, actual practice, and conclusion. One, preparation. First, earnestly go for refuge and generate bodhicitta, since that these are the gateway and the central pillar of the teachings, and especially the Mahayana, this should not be mere words. Because seeing the reality of mind depends on amassing the collections and purifying negativity, first recite the hundred syllable mantra at least a hundred thousand times and do as many hundreds of prostrations as you can while reciting the confession of downfalls. From your heart, make repeated requests to your root guru, who is indivisible from all the Buddhas of the three times. Two, actual practice. There are many ways to explain Mahamudra, but they fall into two categories, Sutra and Tantra Mahamudra. 
Tantric Mahamudra is the Mahamudra of Saraha, Nagarjuna, Naropa, and Maitripa. In it, the clear light of great bliss is produced from skillful means such as penetrating the vital points of the Vajra body itself. It is the quintessence of highest yoga tantra taught in the corpus of essential works of the Mahasiddhas. Sutra Mahamudra is the way to meditate on emptiness taught explicitly in the extensive, intermediate and condensed perfection of wisdom sutras. The Supreme Arya Nagarjuna has stated that there is no path to liberation other than this. Here I will give a commentary according to his intention and show how to introduce the nature of mind in accordance with the statements of the lineage gurus. The technique according to the sutras. Although called by many names, innate union, the amulet box, the fivefold, equal taste, the four syllables, pacifier, cutting off, great perfection, counsel on the middle way view, and so on. That's all the different traditions and all the different explanations in Tibetan Buddhism, showing how they all come together. When a yogi who is skillful in the scriptures and logic of definitive meaning and who has experience analyzes all converge in a single intent. Seeking the view after meditation on calm abiding. Between the two approaches of one, seeking meditation on calm abiding on the basis of the view, and two, seeking the view on the basis of meditation on calm abiding, the explanation here follows the second approach. Sitting, nine round breathing, refuge and bodhicitta. On a seat suitable for absorption, adopting the seven crucial elements of physical posture, cleanse the channels with the nine round breathing. At the beginning, with lucid awareness, thoroughly release all impurities and with a pure, virtuous mind, go for refuge and generate bodhicitta. Guru Yoga. Meditate on the profound path of guru yoga and after making hundreds of fervent requests and so on, dissolve the guru into yourself. Recognizing the conventional nature of mind. In that state where you are indistinct from your guru, do not allow your conceptual mind to entertain any fears or expectations and enter equipoise without the slightest distraction. It's not the cessation of mental activity as when you faint or fall asleep. Begin, what, begin keeping watch with undistracted mindfulness and with alertness, make your mind attentive to any movement. Tighten by making taut and look nakedly at the nature of that which is clear and knowing. Recognize any conceptual thoughts that arise. Moreover, like a swordsman in a duel, exert yourself in cutting off whatever conceptual thoughts arise. Having finished cutting them off, rest your mind and without losing mindfulness, loosen by relaxing. As it is said, tighten by making taut, Loosen by relaxing, and there is where you place the mind. And when mind bound in a tangle is relaxed, without doubt, it frees itself. In accordance with these statements, relax without becoming distracted. As you look at the nature of whatever conceptual thoughts arise, they disappear on their own and a vacuity dawns. Similarly, if you investigate when the mind is still a non-obstructing and empty clarity is vivid, it is called, 
Sorry. Similarly, if you investigate when the mind is still, a non-obstructing and empty clarity is vivid. It is called seeing that stillness and seeing that stillness and movement are integrated. Recognize as movement of the mind whatever conceptual thoughts are generated and without blocking them, focus on their nature. This is similar to the example of the bird that flies from a boat. As it is said, like the crow that flies off a boat and after circling around it, lands on it again. Having practiced in this way, the nature of any equipoise is a space of vacuity, since it is a non-obstructing, lucid, clear and unobstructed, because it is non-obstructing, lucid, clear and unobstructed by anything material. It is also vivid since anything can appear. This reality of the mind is indeed perceived directly with insight, but it can't be indicated, grasped at, or named as this. These days, most of the great meditators of the land of snows agree that placing the mind in a relaxed manner on whatever dawns without grasping is renowned as instruction kindling Buddhahood. I, Cherky Gyaltsen, say that for beginners, this is an amazing, skillful method, establishing a stillness of the mind and a way to introduce the conventional mind. Recognizing the ultimate reality of the mind. As for the way to introduce the reality of the mind, I will record the oral instruction of my root guru. He is the pristine wisdom of all Buddhas who assume the aspect of a saffron robe monk and remove the darkness of my confused mind. From within that very state of earlier equipoise, investigate intelligently with subtle awareness the essence of the individual who is meditating, just like a small fish that moves in lucid waters without causing any disturbance. Arya Nagarjuna himself stated, the individual is not earth, is not water, is not fire, is not wind, is not space, is not awareness. It is not all of these. Yet what individual is there other than these? Just as the individual is not real because it is composed of the six elements, likewise the elements themselves are not real because they are themselves composite. When having investigated according to this, to his statement, you find not even an atom of the equipoise and the practitioner who enters equipoise sustain a space-like equipoise, single-pointedly and without distractions. Moreover, from within the state of equipoise, various objects appear and proliferate in this non-obstructing vacuity that is not established as material form. Recognize this non-obstructing continuum, the mind that engages continuously as clear and knowing. The conceiving mind appears to not rely on anything else. And as for the objects that it, it apprehends, Protector Shantideva has stated, what is called a continuum or a collection is false in the same way as our Amala, an army and so on. Relying on scriptures and logic, enter single-pointed equipoise in the state where things do not exist in the way they appear. 
in brief as my spiritual teacher Sangha Yeshi, who understood everything in accordance with reality said when you fully understand that whatever dawns in your mind is apprehended conceptually the sphere of ultimate reality will dawn without your needing to rely on anything else once you have, once you place your mind in the knowledge of that dawning dwell on it in single pointed equipoise how amazing similar to this statement Padampa Sange also stated, people of Dingri make the lance of awareness twirl within the empty state. The view is unimpeded and unobstructed. These instructions converge in the same point. Conclusion, dedication. Afterward, dedicate whatever positive roots of virtue were created from having meditated on Mahamudra, along with the ocean of your virtue collected in the past, present and future toward unsurpassable great enlightenment. Having cultivated your mind in this way, whenever you investigate in great detail the way any object of the six types of consciousness appears, the way it exists will dawn nakedly and vividly. Recognize whatever arises in your mind. In brief, do not grasp at the inherent existence of whatever objects appear such as your mind and so on, and always sustain with certainty the way they exist. With such understanding, all phenomena in samsara and nirvana are united in a single essence. Aryadeva confirms this by explaining that whoever sees one entity sees all entities. Whatever is the emptiness of one is the emptiness of all. The mind that is properly placed in equipoise on reality is indeed completely free from elaborations with respect to samsara and nirvana, such as existence, non-existence, and so on. Once you have risen from that equipoise, when you investigate, you see that although agents, actions, and dependent originations exist merely through being imputed with a name, they still undeniably appear like a dream, a visual distortion, a moon's reflection on water, and a mirage. When for you, appearances do not obscure emptiness, and emptiness does not obscure appearances, the noble path of emptiness and dependent arriving, arising, having the same meaning, will manifest. Colophon and dedication. These words were written by the renunciate Lausanne Cherky Gyaltsen, who has heard many teachings. Through this merit, may all wandering beings quickly become conquerors through this path that has only one door to liberation. Having seen that the eight worldly concerns are like the drama of lunatics, Gendon Gyaltsen, with the degree of the ten fields of knowledge, and Sherab Sangye from Hatong, with the degree of ten, the ten difficult subjects, live according to the conduct of rishis in isolated mountain valleys and take this path as the essence of their practice. They had already urged me many times to introduce Mahamudra in this way. In particular, the great Ensapa himself, the omniscient conqueror and lord of masters and attainments, has said, I have written an explanation similar to the Lamrim of the Kadumpas, starting from the proper way to rely on the spiritual master up to 
calm abiding and insight in a song of realizations as advice from myself and others without including at the end this path that has just been explained. I am not able to write down the ultimate instruction of Mahamudra that is not well known in the land of snows. What was not written down at that time due to restrictions was intended for a later time. This is understood by an assertion that is established, for example, by the statement in the Lotus Sutra. Since it is an object to be thoroughly realized by the pristine wisdom of a Buddha, never tell those who take it upon themselves to write of this method that you are enlightened. Why? Because those who act as our refuge take timing into consideration. I, Lausanne Choki Gyaltsen, who upholds the immaculate instruction of Sutra and Tantra and the undefiled stream of blessings of those who actually practice this path, have also become part of this lineage, starting from the unparalleled teacher, the king of the Shakyas, all the way down to my own root guru, Sangye Yeshe, who knows everything and sees everything. Without introduct, introducing impurities of Samaya, I composed this text in Gandan Narpa Gyalwe Ling. Okay, that's it. There we get the blessings from all the lamas right back to Panchen Lama, right back to the Buddha in the lineage of holy beings. How marvelous. Thank you, Venerable Avena. So I think we dedicate now. Yeah. We have a little break, and then those who want to take refuge or listen to about refuge before they take it to decide what you want, or just hang out and relax and listen, you're very welcome. I think um, I think if you can wait 10 minutes, five, maybe 10 minutes, we dedicate first. We think all is amazing. We'll do this together. I think I'd like to do them in English. Is that okay, Jason? Yes. Can I read them, please? Yes, please. Jason, can I read? Oh, yes, yes. yes. That's okay? Yes, please. Um, all right. We think due to this virtue, so what does that mean? Due to all the, the powerful work we've done for this last many hours, all the imprints we've put in our mind, all the seeds of virtue, all the effort we've made, how amazing. But due to all that, because none of these streets have gone, none of these seeds have gone astray. So this is so marvelous. May I quickly become a Guru Buddha, which means a Buddha in the manifestation of the, our one heavy with qualities and in the manifestation of our person heavy with qualities, who is the Buddha. They're the same and lead all transmigratory beings, all suffering sentient beings, without exception to that state. Up a bit. Okay. So now, yeah. So now this marvelous aspiration, this body cheetah, which we didn't talk about, is this outrageous, amazing, over-the-top, insane, brave attitude of the great beings who have accomplished this incredibly powerful compassion. The unique quality of the bodhisattvas is great compassion. And great compassion is this brave attitude that says, it's my job. That's the energy of the bodhisattva, that the compassion is unique. If you've achieved liberation, if you're a, a Hinayana Ahant, you have inconceivable compassion. You have inconceivable love and virtue. There's no question. But because for life after life after life, your motivation is to get the hell out of samsara, when you finally achieve liberation in one life or other, your bliss, which is incredible, 
and your and your wish to get out of samsara override your compassion. But if you've got great compassion, this unique extra level of compassion, which is it's my job. If I don't do it, who will? It's the brave attitude of the bodhisattva. And that's what this is. May this precious supreme bodhicitta, not yet born, in the minds of beings, may it arise, and may that which has arisen in the minds of beings never decline, but increase more and more and more. Okay. So now may our holy beings, we think of his holiness as Dalai Lama, because he's like, you know, one of the big bosses. We think may he live a long, long, long life. And Lama Zopa who's who's little, you know, uh, Jason, and uh, they're not part of the FPMT, but they're students of Lama Zopa. That's why their little name, Zopa Noble Park, the little study group. They haven't become part of the FMT yet, but they're students of Lama Zopa. So because of that, we'll just think these words that the, you know, for His Holiness, go back a bit, for His Holiness, to say these words. So the wish-granting, wish-fulfilling jewel, source of every single benefit and happiness in this world, to the incomparably kind Tenzin Gyatso, I beseech, may all your holy wishes be spontaneously fulfilled. And then in the, so the next one, please, go up, Lama's over. And then further, that's right. So you uphold the subduer's moral way, who serves as the bountiful bearer of all, sustaining, preserving, and spreading Manjunath's victorious doctrine, who masterfully accomplishes magnificent prayers, honoring the three jewels, the three sublime ones, savior of myself and others, your disciples, please, please live long. May all our, all our teachers, all our gurus, all those heavy with qualities, all the knowledge holders, because they're the ones we meet in human form who show us the way. May they all live long, long, long lives, okay? We would also like to offer the long life prayer for Venerable Rabina. Okay, so victorious one. Your own teacher while you're doing this. Any of your own teachers, go on. Dharmakaya, the great bliss embraced by great compassion, my perfect Aratara, who in an ordinary form are the guide for us pitiful transmigrating beings left guideless. How kind you are. May all your wishes be instantly fulfilled and may your life be stable until samsara ends. O mighty one, you who destroy all the enemy of delusions, who reveal the Dharma of scripture and realization, spreading it in the mental continuum of transmigrating beings, thereby eliminating the two obscurations, including their imprints, how kind you are. May all your wishes be instantly fulfilled and may your life be stable until samsara ends. By the blessings of the Guru, the Deity, and the Dharma protectors, and Amitraya actions and their results, as well as the truth of ultimate reality, in all my lifetimes, may I only please and never displease for even one second the Guru, and may the vital points of my prayers be fulfilled. Okay, good. Okay, this is wonderful. Let me see all the faces again. I'm going to say goodbye to you all, and I'll see you all in about, maybe about seven minutes, if you all want to hang around. If you